This is Martin McKay from the Network Security Podcast. And this is Chris John Riley from the Eurotrash Security Podcast. And you're listening to the official podcast of the first 2011 conference in Vienna, Austria. To find out more, please visit the site at www.first.org. And now we join our interview in progress. time in the podcast, we're lucky enough to be talking to Kurt Sauer, one of the members of the FIRST Steering Committee. Kurt was previously the Chief Security Officer over at Skype and is now running his own consultancy, Spinlock Technologies, based out of Tokyo, Japan. Due to his proximity to the recent tragedy in Japan, we started off by talking to Kurt about how companies are dealing with the ongoing situation. I was at the uh, Tokyo airport when that, when that hit. And of course, they closed the airport, so I got stuck there for 36 hours or so. I mean, I felt some earthquakes before, but never a bunch of them at once. And not only was this one just like humongously strong, but it just, just the aftershocks kept going and going and going. And it really, uh, it got to be a little bit much, I gotta say. I can imagine that wouldn't be one of the, the nicest experiences. Well, I learned what, what kind of noises the building makes at the airport when there's an earthquake, because you can actually hear it in the building before you feel it. It's, it's pretty interesting. I guess that doesn't really work as an early warning system, though, does it? Well, yeah, I guess it. You know, it's <laughs> uh, eat, drink, and what was it? Eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, whatever. It's one of those experiences, I suppose. How often does that happen in Japan? I mean, it's not. It's obviously once every ten years as a big quake, is it? Or well, I don't know. I mean, I guess the the Kobe quake was around ten years ago. I don't know exactly how long ago it was, but it was around ten years. There, there's a um, every several hundred years, there is a major quake that happens right about where Tokyo is and it's like 30 years overdue and so they have been planning in a very calculated way for that quake to come and hit and how to, how they respond to that and it hasn't happened yet so you know I guess you could say it's any day but um, yeah quakes happen I guess fairly often I've maybe felt before this I'd maybe felt a dozen over the few years I've been here. But after that one, I felt a dozen or more in a day. So it was really kind of wild. Well, I remember in uh, 2009 at the first conference in Kyoto, there was a, a presentation on how they recovered from the last major quake about 10 years back. Um, right. It was interesting to see how they how they'd planned and how they'd recovered. And, and I understand with this quake, they're moving pretty swiftly to, to repair the damage as well. Well, they are, but I mean, it's. I think it's going to take them, no matter how swift they are, it's going to take many years to recover from this. I mean, just the scale of the de of the destruction is pretty. I mean, pretty horrific. I mean, I get. I, I don't know how long it took them to to respond to to Kobe. I guess there must be some sort of phased reconstruction. Obviously, you've got to get the rail lines back. That's kind of the lifeblood of Japan. Then start rebuilding, you know, key infrastructure. But now, on top of this, they've got you know, a nuclear power plant problem and not just Fukushima. There's other ones as well, but Fukushima is the one that's got all the attention. So that's going to be distracting for people for a while and disruptive to a lot of people because a lot of people have been turned out of their homes. So it's, uh, it's not an easy thing to live with. I mean, in regards to, to kind of IT infrastructure, I mean, does, does Japan deal with you know, business continuity management and disaster recovery very differently than, than kind of US and Europe? It's hard for me to say because the amount of work that I actually do in Japan is fairly low. Most of, most of my work is outside of Japan. I just happen to be based out of here. Talking to people who are you know, in, in the industry and around, it seems like there's you know, a lot of the same... I mean, thanks to ISO standards, right, there's, there's a lot of sort of common baselines that are considered to be best practices. So 
I think a lot of that still exists, but to the extent that it diverges, uh, or, or the extent to which it diverges, I do not know. I'll actually ask about this, because this seems like a really interesting uh, data point. Yeah, no, it's, it's obviously not something that happens every day, but it's it's kind of interesting because there's been companies that have obviously been wiped out in Japan completely by the tsunami and, and by the earthquakes because right. they've taken such damage that there's no way that they can they can recover from it. And then the knock-on point is I've heard recently that there's hotels that are now out of business because people aren't coming because the earthquake happened. They don't have any customers anymore and they can't afford to keep going. So yeah. it's kind of a knock-on effect. The earthquake damage and the tsunami are, are obviously a major damage, but then as you follow on, you start seeing a ripple effect of, of other companies falling or having serious difficulties right. due to whether that's infrastructure issues or tourism issues and things like that. Yeah, no, that, that doesn't surprise me at all. Even, even in Tokyo, there are certainly a lot of stories of small enterprises that either depend very, very heavily on tourism business, which has fallen off dramatically, going out of business or at least shuttering for a while. Uh, I, I can only imagine that up on the, the Tohoku area, which is the northeast part of the main island of Japan, you know, the only reason people are going there right now for the, for the most part is to volunteer to help clean up. And that's even a problem because they've got so few free resources that they can't handle the influx of volunteers to help them do the cleanup kind of perverse but it's an interesting kind of side effect this time of the year just leading up to this time of the year is probably the heaviest tourism season in japan both for internal tourism as well as as foreign tourists and that is because it's the hanami or cherry blossom viewing season and it's very beautiful and it's very beautiful around the area where all of this happened and so of course all these famous inns and resorts and so on were were booked full before the quake hit and then afterwards not only was there damaged i mean some of the places were just damaged and you couldn't go there but even the places that weren't were having problems because the feeling amongst japanese and everyone here was hey we shouldn't be going and having you know some luxury outing and plus transportation is kind of difficult and nobody knew what was going on with the nuclear plant and so people just said uh you know not this year so they're canceling so all these places that were booked six, eight, 12 months in advance were suddenly at least half empty. So that can't be good for them, even if they're not in the directly affected area. So that's like Aomori and places to the west. So it's really, yeah, I mean, it just, it's got to be awful. There was another city where the earthquake damaged all the, um, like the buildings were damaged, but uh, all of the pottery was destroyed. And it was like towns that specialize in pottery as their thing. And that's also a tourist you know, so it's all just, yeah, it's just bad. I actually think it's probably a good time to come do tourism here. And I'm saying that kind of objectively because like, you know, whatever I come and go. But the history of the world of, of earthquakes is that typically there's this sort of decay curve. After a big earthquake happens, you typically don't have another big earthquake, at least not in recorded history. You know, one never knows, I guess. There will be more earthquakes, but they will decrease in scale. And they're all already, you know, to the point where... Yes, sometimes you can feel them, but they don't do anything other than go, oh, the building's shaking a little bit and it stops. I mean, your mileage may vary, but, you know, the cost of coming is pretty low right now. So I, I don't know. I'm a little bit of a disaster traveler, though. I'll, I'll definitely, you know, like I'd, I'd love to go to Thailand, even though they've had the red shirt riots there. It's sort of like the chances of my getting caught up in it are pretty slim. So but other people are more risk averse. So it just depends on 
where you fall on that curve. One of the things I did want to ask you about was how you felt the communications were, because you were in Japan at the point, and I know you were stuck at the airport with probably very limited connectivity, but this is probably one of the one of the first issues in Japan or first major earthquakes in Japan that's been you know, live-tweeted before it's been on the news. Right. Do, do you see quite a lot of you know social media in Japan being used as the initial contact for these kind of things, or, or in Japan are they not really caught on to the whole social media thing yet? Well, so I'll give an analogy of something that happened uh, many years ago that directly affected my life at the time, and that was uh, an earthquake that happened in Taiwan. And I don't remember the year. I want to say it was uh, about 2004 or something like that. And I was working at Skype at the time. And at the time, we had very little penetration of Skype in in areas outside of kind of a core user base in, in Europe. And... It turns out that when the when that quake hit in Taiwan, it had a devastating impact on the telecommunications infrastructure. The base communications infrastructure still existed, so there was internet connectivity, but phone calling was either jammed or overloaded or not working for some reason. Uh, and people caught on to the fact that Skype was working and it worked pretty well and it became hugely popular. And as far as I know, to this day, it is still a very popular communications tool in Taiwan. And it was all, I think, because of this natural disaster that happened. And I think in the same way, there hasn't been a great deal of uptake of social media I've seen in Japan. Notably, people who I know who are trying to do bilingual blogging and so forth have, you know, experimented with with Twitter for pretty big accounts, but haven't gotten you know, huge amounts of traction. Yet now I think people are talking all about the the Twitter effect here. I've certainly heard it 10 times more since the earthquake than I did before the earthquake. Now, I think that these events have a way of making people start to rely on new forms of communication because, you know, phone systems were, you know, either put into some kind of emergency mode where you could only call, you know, the emergency numbers uh, or at least they were overloaded. And so people started to rely on, you know, Skype and Twitter and, and other forms of social media to find out what's going on with family and friends. I know that uh, Google's search tool is also widely reported in the news and uh, by all accounts quite well received. These things come in, in waves, right? I mean, they, they, they people make changes because there's some need for it. It's only the early adopters who do it because it's cool. Yeah, usually they, they move on before it gets to the point where it's uh, everyone else starts to adapt to it. For example, everyone's moved off of you know things like Facebook and things like that. Or the cool right. people have moved off Facebook and they've moved on to, onto Twitter and now everyone's migrating over to Twitter and the cool people say that in air, air quotes because I have no idea who the cool people are um, right. are, are waiting for they'll work for Facebook but they use something else right I exactly I mean, you, you wouldn't want to work for them and use their product that would just be cliche so um, so yeah they're, they're all waiting for the next big thing and um I guess, I don't know what that's probably going to be 70 characters instead of 140 because 140 <laughs> is just far too much. <laughs> well, it's much better to have 140 characters when you're writing in Japanese because the characters are, even though they're double-wide characters, you uh, you get the same number of characters per tweet, so you can get far more information <laughs> into the tweet than you can when you're writing in, in English because the entropy level is different. So. It's nice that they support the, the character formats because I think at the beginning they, they really didn't support anything yeah. other than... I think that's true, yeah. They actually, somebody told me once that they had considered cutting the size of, of uh, Unicode tweets to, um, to half the size in order to... Uh, compensate for the for the density of the information but it's if they did that i think they would lose their their user base here because so many people now tweet and it's their tweets yeah are well received so i don't know we'll see 
Anyway, well, moving moving off of off of Japan and moving kind of more to a to an IT centric focus, the upcoming first conference in in Vienna. Yes, this has been a, a while in the making. I can imagine. I know you're already deep in planning for next year's conference. Have you actually announced where next year's conference? Yes, we have. It will be located in Malta, so we're looking forward to that very much. I didn't want to let that one slip. So uh, yeah, as long no. as it's been announced. One of the things that interests me is what process you go through to select where the next conference is going to be. Because I mean, I I, I love the fact it's in Vienna. It's far it's far more complicated and nuanced than I uh, than I uh, realized before I joined the, the steering committee. There's actually uh, some some real thoughtful work that goes into trying to come up with a place to hold a conference like this. Because first mission is really not just uh, incident response; it's bringing incident response to the global community. It's trying to push our programs so that they are able to be received by the widest number of people and and one of the things that we try to do to achieve that is to hold the conference in different locations so that for you know some population it's uh, somewhat easier to get to the location and so that it's also an interesting place for people to uh, to go so in doing that the steering committee starts the process actually we, we've already started the process for the 2013 conference where we sat down and talked about sort of just very, very general uh, ideas of what sort of region of the world or what objectives we try to, to, to achieve. And when we started looking at Malta, I had just joined the steering committee at that time. And one of the big issues at the conference in Kyoto, where, where we started this process, was how do we try to connect with regions of the world like Africa, like the Middle East, like lesser developed parts of Asia, where internet penetration is perhaps low right now, but where we, we're seeing on a weekly basis new, very high capacity fiber cables drop. And of course, you know, after that, there's going to be more and more data centers built in these areas for a variety of reasons, cost reasons and, and facility growth reasons. And right now, I would have a hard time putting my finger on more than a handful of well-known incident response teams in, in those regions. One of the most frequently cited reasons why people don't attend our conference from those regions is they don't have funds for travel or a difficult to for them to reach a location like the United States. Of course, the flip side of that is we have a lot of attendees who come from Europe and from the US and for them to go to location like South Africa is also problematic. So the question is where can we situate the conference so that in any particular year we're, we're servicing the right community. We settled on Malta after a really long look at the different locations and thought Malta was a great cross between uh, easy access to places like uh, like Dubai and, and, and other locations in the Middle East, uh, as well as being, of course, easy to reach from Europe and only one air hop away from uh, major sites in the United States. So, uh, and then of course, you know, each year it, it moves around to new locations. I'm sure in 2013 they'll choose a location that is probably far away from Malta. I imagine it must be kind of hard to find a suitable location for these kind of conferences because the, you know, the first conference isn't small and finding a suitable hotel space in these these places must be a bit tricky as well. Right, a conference like FIRST uh, has historically been run in a hotel setting where we're trying to find a hotel venue that's big enough to be able to house all the different track sessions and so on without getting so large that we end up moving into 
a conference center or something that is going to be, I would say, logistically more of a challenge for us to, to pull off at the same uh, at the same cost as what we're doing now. So it's a bit of a balancing act. And we do, as I say, quite a bit of site research to make sure that the places we do pick have, you know, at least a couple of competing properties we can go to so that we, you know, get the best price. So it's just sort of normal business practice for finding a place to run a conference. But it's, uh, I must admit, it is more of a challenge than I, than I, uh, thought it would be when I took on the job as the conference liaison. I guess the goal is to avoid becoming so large that the only place where you can run it is Las Vegas. Right, exactly. There's I, There are a few places uh, like Las Vegas that have these very large venues, but I, I'm not sure there's a great appetite for taking the conference and making it so large that it's always in one place because, again, that takes away from our ability to take the conference to people as opposed to people coming to the conference. And I, I guess it's sort of a philosophical discussion that's worth maybe having from time to time about how the conference is set up and run, but it, we've got a formula that seems to satisfy a lot of people and uh, we intend to continue in that uh, direction I think for the for the time being. I think it's a very unique way of, of doing the conference and I like the fact that it, it enables local cert teams to maybe send people and for people to attend who might not otherwise be able to attend. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at what we're going to be doing at the conference in Vienna, I have nothing but the most profound, profoundly good words to say about the the CERT AT team and and all of the other supporting folks in Vienna and around Vienna who have been providing us with absolutely indispensable assistance in getting this conference put together. And we try to do the same thing everywhere we go. We've been to Malta to, to visit with them and have been engaging the Maltese CERT and trying to get them not only to support us and sponsor us, but also to join the organization. And, and you know, if we're able to do that, then that's uh, certainly a, a feather in our cap. But we think it will have a lasting impact on the place where, where we're going. So it's it's really a symbiotic relationship, I think, if we're able to do this. The tagline for the first conference this year is what history can teach us. What was the thought behind that? I mean, just looking back at, at previous incidents and previous breaches to say, okay, what, what can we learn from this? Well, first of all, the, the theme comes from the membership itself. So we each year we ask members to come up with a, an idea of what would be an appropriate theme to use for the conference. And when we receive the, the themes for this conference, I think the, the, the key about the historical setting was a little bit to play into the idea that Vienna itself is a city with a, a very rich history. It's been a, a capital of empires and in, in a large way connected with the development of the world over the years. And you can learn a lot about the way that the, that the world is divided and operated in a political sense today by looking at the history uh, of Austria and of Vienna in particular. Uh, and it's also been a, a capital of, of other things, such as being a thought leader, the Vienna Circle, philosophy, and so on. So by looking at the history of a city, you can learn about the world. And I think if we kind of try to draw some kind of analogy to that in the information security world, uh, I think we're all driving headlong into a lot of new areas in technology and in policy and in terms of cybercrime and, and a whole host of areas we're, we're doing new things. Each of us is experiencing something new every day. And I think it's worthwhile to not always be looking directly forward to see what's ahead of you, but maybe to spend a little bit of time thinking about what has occurred so that you can try to build from that and learn from experiences uh, so that you're not surprised when something comes around the corner when you're looking straight ahead. Now, of course, those words are all just a little bit generalistic. If you take a look at the program, you'll see we do have some very concrete ideas of what we're trying to accomplish. But I think when, when the program committee sat down 
to try to select from the many, many very good presentations that we had submitted to us to select those that would actually be able to, to make the cut and be presented at the conference, we were looking for something that would show us a little bit about the future from looking at the past. From the time that I started attending first conferences, which was many years ago, we had effectively a track, and the track was whatever was on it, and that's that's all there was. And over the years, that has kind of developed into having a couple of tracks, sometimes three tracks. And this year, we actually do have, for the entire conference, except for the plenary sessions, three tracks. But we decided to move away from having some kind of rigorous business, technical, whatever, kind of breakdown of what those tracks are, because many people want to attend many things. In many senses, our membership our membership is organizations for the most part, and so those organizations have people who specialize in different areas. We thought it was best to not try to tag speakers as being in the business section or technical session or whatever. So we instead just settled on calling the sessions rock, paper, and scissors. So people can take a look at the title of the actual talks in each one of the tracks and decide which one they want to go to and allow them to, to attend that. Beyond that, I think what we've tried to do is to capture, I think, people who are expert speakers in their particular areas, but with we tried very hard to select people who had practical issues or practical experiential uh, items to talk about, and leaving a little bit of room on the side for people who had short presentations to make that were perhaps not of a rigorous enough nature or, or that were too contemporary to be able to get in in time. Uh, to be able to present their materials in a lightning talk format. So we've got both formal presentations and some light presentations that are available for the for the uh, attendees to go and see. And I would say that we're also working very hard right now on some some as yet unannounced talks that we may be able to squeeze in something about some more contemporary uh, events, perhaps like the recovery from the Japan uh, disaster. These things haven't been totally settled, but we're we're trying real hard to be flexible with our schedule so that we can accommodate both the the talks that are on the on the list as well as as be able to capture some of the, the current events. Well, there's certainly a nice range of countries represented in in the talks. I mean, what are the representation like from people who are actually attending the conference? You have people from from all over the world, obviously, but is it a majority of Europeans attending? Well, I haven't seen the actual registration breakdown for this year, but I would say that if past conferences are a guide. Our main attendee base is is split between the U.S. and Europe, and I don't know exactly to what to what percentage. Then we'll have a, a smaller number of, of attendees who come from Asia. Although I think it's worth noting that in our conference in Japan, it was the first time that we had uh, local attendees outnumbering the non-local attendees. I believe so. We had a very strong core of attendees from the from the Japan CERT organizations. This year, I expect we're going to have predominantly um, European audience because of the location of the conference, but we'll have strong attendance in the U.S. as well. But again, you know, our, what we're really hoping to do is to also be able to attract speakers and also attract attendees from places where we've had uh, underrepresentation in, in first membership. And that's why you'll see that we have speakers from India and we have speakers from South Africa uh, on, the, on the conference in order to try to... Um, to draw out that kind of a, a crowd, and also to speak to people from from uh, Eastern Europe, uh, we have uh, we have uh, Eugene Kaspersky from from Russia coming, and uh, some other Kaspersky folks will be on the on the program as well. 
I'm very happy that we're going to be holding this conference in Vienna. Over the past 18 months, as I've been working as the conference liaison, I've had an opportunity to, to meet and work with a number of organizations, both our, our contractors and suppliers in, in Austria, as well as the travel and, and hotel industry people who are working with us on putting the logistics of the conference together. And I'm absolutely excited about the the venues and the, the entertainment, as well as the actual... Uh, nuts and bolts contents of the of the conference. So I think people who come to the conference are going to find it's uh, it's an enjoyable experience, but also a very educational one. And I'm really looking forward to getting it kicked off in June. Thanks for listening to this interview on the official first podcast. You've been listening to Martin McKay from the Network Security Podcast and Christian Riley from the Eurotrash Security Podcast. You can find out more about the FIRST conference and this podcast at www.first.org. Thank you very much for listening. See you in Vienna. Vienna.